recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Euro. Today is Sunday, February 15th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This is um, probably, since we began this series this summer, <clears throat> this is probably our fourth program on early Christianity in Britain. And once again, I have Sven Longshanks here to help us make this presentation. Today's presentation will be the... Um, what will be subtitled The Roman Catholic Persecution of the Early British Church. Hello, Sam. Hi, Bill. Uh, praise Yahweh and love your race. I'm glad to be here again, once again, and uh, hopefully people are going to enjoy what we have for them tonight. Well, thank you for being here. Tonight, for, for, for this afternoon's program, I should say, in, in my perspective anyway, the um, what we have, I'm going to present a couple of um, quotes from Bede, the eighth century A.D. ecclesiastical historian of the English, and and then I'm going to quote from a bull, which was issued by Pope Adrian, who is actually English by race, and this papal bull will show <clears throat> that there were independent. Christian churches in Ireland that were not under the control of the Roman Catholic Church as late as the 12th century AD. After that, Sven and I are going to present and discuss a paper which was written a couple of years ago by a listener of our programs, and his name is Seth Kino, entitled Catholic Persecution of the Church of the Chaldees from 597 A.D. to 755 A.D. And we'll use that for discussion points for the balance of our presentation. First, from Bede, from his Ecclesiastical History, from Book 1, Chapter 13, and from the context of these statements of Bede, this proves that there were already Christians among the Scots before the Catholics ever came to Scotland. By Catholics, I should say before the Roman Catholics ever came to Scotland. And this part of Bede's history is entitled, In the Reign of Theodosius the Younger, Palladius was sent to the Scots that believed in Christ, the Scots that already believed in Christ, the Bretons, begging assistance of the hideous, the consul could not obtain it. The year is 423. In the year of our Lord, 423, according to Bede, Theodosius the Younger, next to Honorius, being the 45th from Augustus, governed the Roman Empire 26 years. In the eighth year of his reign, Palladius was sent by Celestinus, the Roman pontiff, to the Scots that believed in Christ to be their first bishop, first Roman Catholic bishop. In the 23rd year of his reign, Ahidius, a renowned person, being also a patrician, discharged his third consulship with Symmachus for his colleague. 
To him, the wretched remains of the Breton sent a letter, which began thus, To a hideous, thrice consul, the groans of the Bretons. And in the sequel of the letter, they thus expressed their calamities. The barbarians drive us to the sea. The sea drives us back to the barbarians. Between them, we are to two sorts of death. We are either slain or drowned. Yet neither could all this procure any assistance from him. And he was then engaged in his most in, in most dangerous wars with Bledla and Attila, king of the Huns. And through the year before this, Bledla had been murdered by the treachery of his brother Attila. Yet Attila himself remained so intolerable an enemy to the Republic that he ravaged almost all Europe, invading and destroying cities and castles. At the same time, there was a famine at Constantinople, and shortly after, a plague followed. And a great part of the walls of that city with 57 towers fell to the ground. Many cities also went to ruin, and the famine and pestilential state of the air destroyed thousands of men and cattle. Now that, on the surface, that excerpt doesn't tell us a lot at all about Christianity in Scotland. What it does tell us is that first, the Bretons were very well aware of the history on the continent, on what was transpiring on the continent. And Bede's language here, in, in a veiled sort of manner, reveals that there were already Christians among the, the, the Scots before Palladius was sent to Scotland. Now, with that, we're going to speak of a slightly later time in Bede, from Bede Book 2, Chapter 2. Bede's discussion of Augustine's meeting with the bishops of the Bretons again proves the antiquity of Christianity in Britain before the coming of the Roman Catholics. And this is subtitled, Augustine admonished the bishops of the Bretons to Catholic peace and unity, and to that effect wrought a heavenly miracle in their presence and of the vengeance that pursued them for their contempt. And this is dated A.D. 603 in Bede's history. In the meantime, Augustine, with the assistance of King Ethelbert, drew together a conference to a conference, the bishops or doctors of the next province of the Bretons, at a place which is to this day called Augustine's Oak, on the borders of the Wiki and West Saxons, and began by brotherly admonitions to persuade them that preserving Catholic unity with him, they should undertake the common labor of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. For they did not keep Easter Sunday at the proper time, but from the 14th to the 20th moon, which computation is contained in a revolution of 84 years. And these arguments over Easter, which the Roman Catholics have with, with, the, um, with the British Christians, reveals that British Christians existed and, and, and were quite commonplace before the Roman Catholics appeared to evangelize, as they claim, those areas. B continues by saying, when, after long disputation, 
They did not comply with the entreaties, exhortations, or rebukes of Augustine and his companions. This isn't an issue over whether or not they would be Christians. They were Christians. This is an issue over whether they should calculate the date for Easter according to the method of the Roman Catholic Church when they had long had their own method. When after a long disputation they did not comply with the entreaties, exhortations, or rebukes of Augustine and his companions, but preferred their own traditions before all the churches in the world, which in Christ agree with themselves, and, and Bede is basically advertising the Roman Catholic Church, which in Christ agree among themselves, the Holy Father, Augustine, put an end to this troublesome and tedious contention, saying, let us beg of God who, ca who causes those who are of one mind to live in his Father's house, that he will vouchsafe by his heavenly tokens to declare to us which tradition is to be followed, and by what means we are to find our way to his heavenly kingdom. Let some infirm person be brought, and let the faith and practice of those by whose prayers he shall be healed be looked upon as acceptable to God and be adopted by all. He continues by saying, ending the words of uh, the alleged words of Augustine, the adverse party, meaning the British Christians, unwillingly consenting, a blind man of the English race was brought, who having been presented to the priests of the Bretons, found no benefit or cure from their ministry. At length, Augustine, compelled by real necessity, bowed his knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying that the lost sight might be restored to the blind man, and by the corporeal enlightening of one man, the light of spiritual grace might be kindled in the hearts of many of the faithful. Immediately, the blind man received sight, and Augustine was by all declared the preacher of the divine truth. I would dismiss most of that as, as Catholic propaganda. The Bretons then confessed that it was the true way of righteousness which Augustine taught, but that they could not depart from their ancient customs without the consent and leave of their people, and therefore desired that a second synod might be appointed at which more of their number would be present. Here Bede portrays a debate between British Christians and represented by St. Augustine, the Roman Catholic Church, as to um, the calculation date of Easter. The British Christians had already been Christians a long time. And even oh, yeah. reports here that they would not depart from their ancient customs without the consent and leave of their people. So even though Bede, being a Roman Catholic Church historian, being a Saxon by race and not a Breton, and, and quite often a despiser of all things, that belonged to the Bretons, even Bede, in his 
historical narrative, while he's not meaning to tell us the history of any British Christian church, admits its existence. And as we had already pointed out in relation to King Lucius and Bede's admittance that there was a Christian kingdom in Britain at his time, in the second century AD, here we see that that's not just one fleeting remark in regard to Lucius, but that Bede's historical narrative of, of the conversion of the Britons and, and the English to the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, he's admitting, woven into that historical narrative, that there's a British Christian church long before the Roman Catholics ever got to Britain. Yeah, there's, there's um, I was going to say, and before that, uh, that palladium that you mentioned earlier that went to Ireland, they, they kicked him out from Ireland. Uh, they were quite happy to have the real Patrick there, um, but the the Catholic Church had made another Patrick that wasn't born until 890. They they sort of changed the Celtic uh, Patrick for this um, Roman Catholic Ch- uh, Patrick in 890. And what you were talking about there was Ireland, but they were called the Scots. Uh, but in Scotland at the same time as well, you, you had... Um, uh, Ninian, who was uh, the apostle to the Picts, uh, and that was in the um, early 400s. That was at the beginning of the, of the 5th century. And then, um, uh, what's the date of it? I think it's, yeah, in 521, you had um, St. Columba that then went to went to Scotland and was at Iona, and he built hundreds of um, churches. In fact, we've, we've even got a church that St. Ninian built, which was, as I say, was in the beginning of the, of the 4th century. We st- the church is still there, and it, it's um, dedicated to St. Martin, and he founded a place called Whitehern, which is at the mouth of the Clyde. And, and th- th- this, this church was dedicated to St. Martin, but the um, this king that um, Augustine went to see, uh, Ethelbert, I think his name was, he was married to uh, a Christian woman anyway, and she brought over her, or she she got the king to renovate uh, one of the churches that were already there. And this church that they renovated was one of the ones that King Lucius actually built in the second century. But the Saxons had burnt them all to the ground. They destroyed everything. They destroyed all the universities, burnt all the churches down to the ground, blood all over the uh, altars. They were just barbarians, basically. They trashed everything. But this um, church there was dedicated to St. Martin as well. And there's a lot of these, these churches. In fact, all the churches that the Saxons built after Augustine, they would rededicate them and and the Catholics would change the name of the saint of the church, but the name is still held in the uh, area or in the village that uh, has the church in it. And that particular church there was um, St. Martin's, but there was nothing that, the, that Augustine could find to criticise the British Christians about their faith. All he could think about was the date that they celebrated Easter on. And the uh, these British Christians have been Christians for hundreds of years. They had they had primacy over these Saxons, 
Uh, and Augustine said to them, well, I want you to come and help me to convert these people. I mean, he didn't need to do miracles um, making the blind see because the, the British people were already Christian, but they had been driven out of their part of the country. Now, you, we know that um, people think they were driven out to Wales <clears throat> because they got referred to as Wales and Welsh. But it, it wasn't what is Wales today. It was the whole of Wales today, plus it was Somerset and it was Cornwall, parts of Devon. And the, the, uh, the, the area that the Saxons held that they started calling England was just the southeast of the whole island of Britain. It was just the southeast part of it. And the only people that Augustine managed to convert were the, were the people in Kent. And all the other... Um, parts of the heptarchy, all the other parts of the Saxon heptarchy were converted by British Christians that had been consecrated at their own archbishoprics and they weren't associated with Rome at all because their church had been begun by Joseph of Arimathea and they had always been in communion with the patriarch of Jerusalem and by this time they were in communion with the patriarch, more in communion with the patriarch of Constantinople which when you got the schism in the, um, I think it was in 1050, when the church split into two, and you had, that was when the Roman Catholic Church was really first began, and then you had the Eastern Orthodox Church, which was the other side of it, and that the, the um, chief part of the Eastern Orthodox Church was, was Constantinople, and it was to Constantinople that the later Saxons would look to to settle questions of doctrine. The, the court of the highest ecclesiastical appeal was Constantinople. It wasn't Rome. And if you look in um, uh, the life of Alfred the Great, it tells you that they weren't paying taxes to Rome. They were exempt from taxes to Rome. And if you look at the history of the Eastern Orthodox Church, they claim that England... Uh, uh, Britain was um, Anglo-Orthodox and it was part of the Orthodox Church not, but not um, uh, in alliance with Rome at all up until the 10th century and they have records of all these um, Celtic saints and, and they acknowledge the fact that the church began in the, in the uh, first century in Britain and, uh, and, and it wasn't brought there by Augustine at all in the 6th century but the, the Roman Catholics have sought to cover all, all of this up and, and make out that it was, was them that uh, brought Christianity to the country. But it wasn't until about the 10th century that they finally managed to get rid of, of the Celtic Church entirely because there were, there were pockets of it that managed to exist throughout the country. And, again, and as well, there were, there were pockets of, of Druidry that existed right up until the, the uh, 6th or the, or the 7th century. Because St... Columba that went on to Scotland after St. Ninian, because St. Ninian um, converted the Picts in the beginning of the 5th century, and St. Columba went there and say, I think it was uh, five-something five or other, he went there. But he stopped off at um, Iona, and Iona had been an island of, of the Druids for centuries. Part of its title was uh, something to do with, with the Druids. And when um, the Goths sacked Rome, they brought back some of their books, which they took from there, which, which they deposited at Iona. And Columbus went, Columbanus went there, St. Columba, he went there and um, Christianized the place, basically. But there was no fighting or warring with the Druids. And he used to say that Christ was his Druid. Now, it's quite a famous um, 
uh, saying of his was, was that Christ was his druid and he started off the, the monks there and Iona and he said that um, this place will be visited by pilgrims for, for centuries to come and it has been people still go there now and you've got um, all these Norse kings that were buried there, you've got really ancient Celtic crosses uh, and it, the, the druidic tradition sort of was, was continued by the Celtic church right up until, as I say until that time, it wasn't officially, it wasn't until the 10th or 11th century that the that the Caldy Church um, stopped. But another part of it that uh, Augustine really didn't like was the fact that it was hereditary as well, which again was 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 a um, was handed down to them from the Druids because to be a Druid you had to have been a free man for ten successive generations. So you had to be part of the aristocracy to be a Druid. And again, to to be to go back to our Israelite heritage, the, the Levites had to show that they were of the same Levite heritage before they could become a priest. And and the Druids had exactly the same um, system where you had to prove your genealogy before you could even be educated. Um, in in these in, in the religious side of things, so he he didn't like that either. But there was nothing doctrinally that he could find to attack the, the British Church, even though he really dis, really disliked them, and he, he set the Saxons on them and set the Saxons to um, go to war against the British Church. Really, um, I think we'll probably get to that bit in a minute there, Bill. Um, do you want, do you want, I can tell, sorry there for uh, butting in, but I wanted to um, explain that bit about this palladium that was um, uh, kicked out of Ireland. What, what got on? Well, no, I, was, I was just saying that, I, that he, he was actually kicked out, and then um, but Patrick, they accepted Patrick because Patrick was British, but this palladium was um, an emissary of Rome. But the Ireland, again, had had a Christian church for, for a very long time, and they were sending out um, missionaries all to Europe. I mean, while this Augustine was saying, um, we, we want you to come and... Um, uh, be missionaries and evangelize to these Saxons. The the British missionaries were all in Gaul and in Italy, uh, Switzerland. They've, they've got a place there, and it's full of illuminated Celtic manuscripts. They come from Britain. And you've got the, the Book of the Kells. It's uh, quite a famous one. You can see on it, it's got Matthew, I think it's got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Christ, and they're all blonde-haired and, and blue-eyed. And they, they, these Celts would do these fan, uh, amazing... Um, uh, illuminated manuscripts that they had, and they were highly educated. Whereas the, the Saxons that had attacked them were really quite barbaric. They say that they pushed them right the way out of their own country, and then you've got this Augustine saying to them, um, "Well, will you convert these people? Why haven't you converted these people?" And they were saying, "Well, they kicked us out of our own country. You do know that, don't you?" And Augustine just sort of wouldn't wouldn't acknowledge that, and he was saying, "Well, you've got to pay." You've got to uh, look to Rome as being in, in charge, and they were saying, "Well, well, we don't understand this because if you're a Christian, then I owe you the same uh, respect as any other Christian." And they said, "Well, you might as well be obeying our orders as we obey your orders because we're all one in Christ. There is no um, uh, nobody that has superiority over us." I mean, the fact is that, that uh, the British church was, was begun before the church at Rome anyway, so they did have um, primary, they were the primary church, and, and it was acknowledged at various councils that um, the British church was the first church. And 
I mean, it, but for reading between the lines in what Bede is saying, you, you can see that because there are already these Christians there. They've got seven um, archbishops. They've got uh, various other bishops. And one of the things they said when they went to meet Augustine, um, they one of the bits of folklore that goes with it is that the the British bishops spoke to a wise uh, a, a wise man and said, well, how can you know what what should we make of this Augustine chap? And and he said, well, if you go there, he said, make sure you go there a little bit late, and when you enter the room, see if he stands up for when you get when you walk in. And if he stands up, then you know that he's he's honourable and he's genuine and he's paying you respect. And you should also pay him respect. But if he refuses to stand and he remains seated, then you know he's not worthy of your respect. And when the British bishops turned up, Augustine remained seated. So they thought, well, you know, we don't want we don't want anything to do with him. He's he's not respectful towards us, basically. Well, well, right, because if you enter a room and, and, and um, he's found sitting there, he expects you to pay obeisance to him. If he doesn't rise to greet you, he is telling you that he's better than him, that, that he's better than you are. So, so he doesn't deserve any respect because he's, he, he's full of himself and has an, an, an air of his own superiority. So... so that, that's not Christian. That's imperial. That's an imperialist attitude. That's not a Christian brotherly attitude. Not at all. I, I would like to, in, in, in connection to the Irish, now we are going to go momentarily um, way out of our time frame here, but this is very relevant and important to early British Christianity. I'm going to read something from the Annals of Ireland, translated from the original Irish of the Four Masters, and it was translated by Owen Connellan in 1846, and, and it's found on page 721 in an appendix. This is two volumes. It's almost 800 pages altogether. And, and it says as a note, to the book in, 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 um, in general, that as a favorable opportunity did not occur of giving the following important documents at the periods to which they refer, they are inserted here, inserted here. And, and that's in reference to this document being in an appendix and not in, in the relevant historical portion of the book. The document is from the 12th century. The bull of Pope Adrian IV to... King Henry II is the, um, the, the document that this is in reference to. And the book says that an account of this document is given by various Irish historians, particularly in Mac, Mac Georgian's, uh, I'll say Geoghegan's Ireland, and Lanigan's Ecclesiastical History. Now, Lanigan is cited... Dr. Lanigan, he's called, is cited quite often in the notes to this book, not in the book itself. He had his own ecclesiastical history of um, of Ireland in, I believe it was published in 1822. And he, Lanigan, is cited very often in the notes of these books, but Lanigan himself is a Catholic apologist. And that's the problem with all 
literature of learning in, in the medieval period, even with Bede, with Nennius, with Gildas, and, and all these writers who wrote ecclesiastical histories, and, and in Latin especially, is that they were all Catholic churchmen, and all of these histories are written from a Catholic perspective, which sanitized history to the, the, the benefit of Roman Catholic Church dogma and politics. And whenever we read of history from the medieval period, we have to take that into account. We have to. Just like Bede isn't giving us a history of the British Catholic Church, he certainly does, of the, I'm sorry, the British Christian Church, he certainly does admit to its existence. But he sanitizes his history to favor the legitimacy of the Church of Rome. And, and that's, that, that's, um, that's a, a fact of history that has to be considered whenever we read any ecclesiastical history from the Middle Ages or any church history or Christian history that's written through the lens of the Roman Catholic Church. It, it's usually full of propaganda legitimizing Rome. And we have to be careful with that. The Bull of Pope Adrian IV to King Henry II. An account of this document is given by various Irish historians, particularly in McGeogen's Ireland and Lanigan's Ecclesiastical History. Pope Adrian IV, by name Nicholas Breakspear, he was English, was by birth an Englishman. He was a monk of St. Albans and was elected Pope in 1154 and died in 1159. Being a personal friend of King Henry II of England, it is said he was influenced to grant him a bull, conferring on him the sovereignty of Ireland. As it is stated in Hanmer's Chronicle, page 215, the King Henry sent a monk named John of Salisbury and others as a deputation of Rome to solicit this bull from Adrian, who granted it in the year 1155, at which time Henry meditated an invasion of Ireland. Now, this is the, um, the insolence of the Roman Catholic Church. Adrian and the Roman Church did not possess Ireland yet they granted it to the king under the papal pretense that the Church of Rome owned the whole world. The Church of Rome owned everything. Adrian was hoping, as the bull reads, that the king would become the enforcer in Ireland in order that the pretense that the church owned Ireland as well in order that the pretense would become a reality. That's the insolence of Roman Catholicism. Back to our book. But King Henry... I was, gonna, gonna, okay. I was just going to interject there, uh, Bill. I was going to say that, that, was when the, uh, that was when the church finally lost its independence. The last of the Celtic churches lost its independence was at that point with the 
Irish Church, was that up until then, the um, I, I've got the details here of, this, of these two Patricks. I, I forgot I actually had them written down. The, the one that the Catholic Church has tried to say was St. Patrick, he was around in, he didn't arrive until 850 AD. And he came up with the idea of purgatory, whereas the, uh, the original Patrick died around 470 AD. The, the one that actually did um, was pretty big in Ireland and built lots of churches and, and monasteries there. But the second one wasn't around until 850 AD. And he actually fled Ireland because the, um, the Norsemen were, were um, uh, chasing after them, basically, when the Vikings were raiding Ireland. And he was the one that was buried at Glastonbury, was the second St. Patrick, the one that the Catholics claimed was, uh, was the first um, Patrick. So just basically to go to go back to that one there. And the, the original Patrick, he also introduced Latin to uh, Britain, Ireland, and uh, what was well, still Britain was uh, what was now called England. And before that, they had been um, they'd all been using Greek, and they had uh, Greek scriptures that, that they had been using. But it's natural that they would have been using Greek. Again, something that I should have mentioned earlier, um, with Constantine, who, with his Edict of Toleration, and Constantine was the son of a British king, and his his mother, who he thought so much of, uh, she was a, a really devout Christian. She went to uh, Jerusalem to try and find and dug up the place where the spot where um, uh, Christ was crucified, where, where where the Romans had been chucking. Uh, junk there and they've been trashing all, all these places that were sacred to the Christians they've been trashing and, and his mother the um, Queen, Hel Queen Helen or Queen Helena she um, cleaned up all these these places over there in Jerusalem that were sacred to the Christians but because of this and because of Const Constantine and Constantinople obviously the, the Christians that were in Britain were looking to Constantinople they weren't looking towards Rome because the, their hero their king was the one that um, made Constantinople the capital, uh, and they were following Greek. They weren't. Um, they weren't following uh, Latin, as I say, until until St. Patrick um, taught them how to translate in, into Latin and to and to use Latin. So they had no knowledge of Rome at all, although they were in communion with Constantinople and um, Jerusalem, but th th those were the people that they looked to, not Rome, because Rome had been continually been invading Britain and, and we had loads of wars with them. I mean, we, we had the occasional treaties with them, but there, there were times when Rome was paying us tribute. And... Um, our kings were into intermixing with with the emperors of Rome, and this is another thing because um, Queen Helen was was actually a British queen that um, Constantine's mother that, that married Constantinus, the uh, other um, uh, Roman emperor. The Roman Catholic Church wanted to hide that as well, so they tried to say that she was from one of these Baltic states. But her name is in all the genealogies and all the Welsh manuscripts as being as being a British queen, because they wanted to cover that up as well. That Constantine was um, British and that uh, Ellen, his, his mother, was was British. You see, and this, this is this is why you can see that um, this story of the British Church is true, because it, it all fits in. That this is why they they were anti Rome, but they were in communion with with Constantinople and the Eastern Orthodox Church 
claim them as being in communion with them and keep records of all the saints and they say that the British church was started in the first century and they have records of um, all these saints that converted the Irish and, and the Scots and, and it wasn't these people that um, the Roman Catholics have tried to claim for themselves. Sorry, I'll let you uh, carry on there now, Bill. Well, 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 right, I had a couple of thoughts and I, I, I sort of lost them. That the, um, the objective here is to prove that there was an independent Christian church in Ireland until the 12th century. Now, the popes, when they granted lands to a king, they claimed ownership of those lands, but they didn't necessarily hold those lands. The medieval popes would have claimed ownership of the entire world through some imaginary scheme that, that passes that ownership from, Jesus, from, from God the Father to Jesus Christ to... to um, to St. Peter, and, and on to the Pope of Rome. There was no Pope of Rome until the 5th century, 6th century actually, until the 6th century when Justinian in his novels had decreed that the Bishop of Rome would have the, the first place amongst all the Christian bishops. That was a decree of the Byzantine Emperor. And he's giving away something that is not his. It's, in, it's Roman imperialism reborn in the 5th and 6th centuries. And that imperialism wasn't really, the, the power was not consecrated, concentrated in, 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 the, in, in the Bishop of Rome really until the time of the, the Pope called Gregory the Great. So the first Pope, as we know the Pope from the medieval period, that the um, one ruler over a united Catholic church, where, where all the churches are part of the same um, pecking order organization, that, that, that didn't happen until the 6th century and Augustine's, uh, I'm sorry, and, and Justinian's novels, which in... in um, in his novels, I have it posted on Christogenia, the exact wording and, and of the entire novel and, and how it grants, or, or it granted, that the um, Bishop of Rome primacy over all Christian churches, and that could only mean all Christian churches under Byzantine rule. Because outside of Byzantine rule, it wasn't a, a reality. Now, this um, bull of Pope Adrian, they claimed, the popes claimed the right to ownership of the entire world through Peter and, and through Christ. That doesn't mean they had it in reality. By granting Ireland to Henry II, the Pope is hoping that Henry II will go conquer the Irish so that the Pope can collect a tax and, and be guaranteed an income, and, and Henry's reward would be whatever he wanted to do with the, with the rest of the, of the nation. It didn't really matter to him. It, it was a vehicle by which Rome could, could continue to profit at the expense of the people. It's imperialist. It's not Christian at all. And we, we find, I'm going to pick up where, where I discontinued reading, Henry meditated an invasion of Ireland. 
But the king, King Henry, postponed this object, and it is stated by McGeogen, the historian, that the, I'm probably butchering his Celtic name, I'm sorry, that the Empress Matilda, the king's mother, was opposed to the publication of the bull and the invasion of Ireland. The king, King Henry II's mother would have been married to the Holy Roman Emperor at this time, right? King Henry came to Ireland in 1171 and returned to England in 1172. And Adrian's grant of Ireland to him was confirmed by a bull or brief of Pope Alexander in 1172, according to the church historian Lanigan. Keating states that Adrian's bull was published at Waterford in a meeting of bishops and clergy before this time. And according to other accounts, the bull was produced in 1172 by King Henry at the Council of Bishops and Clergy, which he convened at Cashel, the Synod of Cashel, or Cashel. But Lanigan correctly states that the bulls of Adrian and Alexander were, for the first time, publicly read at Waterford in the year 1175 at a meeting of bishops and clergy convened for that purpose by Nicholas, the prior of Wallingford, who had been sent with these documents from England, accompanied by William Fitzadelm de Burgo, afterwards Lord Deputy of Ireland. Thus it appears the bull of Adrian was kept private and not published until 20 years after it had been received by King Henry. The bull of Adrian is represented as a forgery by Max Geogen, the Irish historian, and in Cambrensis Eversus, who was another ecclesiastical historian. These writers being of the opinion that it was fabricated to facilitate the conquest of Ireland by the English. But Lanigan, who is considered the best authority on the subject, maintains that it is absolute, an absolutely authentic document. The bulls of Adrian and Alexander are given in Latin in the French edition of MacGeogen and in English in the edition by Duffy of Dublin in which the bull of Adrian is translated as follows. Adrian, bishop and servant of the servants of God, to his most dear son in Christ, the illustrious king of England, greeting, health, and apostolical benediction. Thy greatness, as is becoming a Catholic prince, is laudably, this is really, um, it, it, it's, it, it's really flattering language, right? Is laudably and successfully employed in thought and intention to propagate a glorious name upon the earth and lay up in heaven the rewards of a happy eternity by extending, this, this language is important, all these little things that are said here add up to the proof that there is an independent Christian church that, that's throughout Ireland, churches I should say, and, and that Rome is about to, through the military power of the King of England, Rome is about to subjugate all of those churches by extending the boundaries of the church, meaning the Roman Catholic Church, and making known to nations which are uninstructed and still ignorant of the Christian faith, and, and this, is, as we shall see, is not true in the case of Ireland. 
its truths and doctrine by rooting up the seeds of vice from the land of the Lord and to perform this more efficaciously. Thou seekest the counsel and protection of the apostolical see in which undertaking the more exalted thy design will be, united with prudence, the more propitious we trust will be thy progress under a benign providence, since a happy issue and end are always the result of what has been undertaken from an ardor of faith and a love of religion. It is not indeed to be doubted that the kingdom of Ireland and every island upon which Christ the Son of Justice hath shone and which has received the principles and which has received the principles of the Christian faith belong of right to St. Peter and the Holy Roman Church. And, and through this loquacious language throughout the entire medieval period, and, and even to this very day, the Pope of Rome thinks that he has ownership right of the world which is um, propaganda. It's not Christian at all. Which thy majesty likewise admits, from whence we the more fully implant in them the seed of faith, that seed which is acceptable to God, and to which we, after a minute investigation, consider that a conformity should be by us the more rigidly required. Thou dearest Son in Christ, hast likewise signified to us that for the purpose of subjecting the people of Ireland to laws, meaning the laws of the Catholic Church, and eradicating vice, eradicating vice from amongst them, thou art desirous of entering that island, and also of paying for each house an annual tribute of one penny to St. Peter. Now, if Catholics, if the churches of Ireland were Catholic, then Rome would already be profiting from them. Rome would already be collecting money from the Irish. Here they're hoping for an annual tribute of one penny per household. And the next line is important. And of preserving the privileges of its churches, pure and undefiled. So the Pope is basically commissioning the King of England to conquer Ireland as long as he preserves the privileges of its churches pure and undefiled and pays a tribute of one penny to St. Peter. It is admitted that Ireland already has churches and its entire bull endeavors to assure that Rome will control them. We, therefore, with approving and favorable views, commend thy pious and laudable desire, and to aid thy undertaking, we give to thy petition our grateful and willing consent that for the extending of the boundaries of the church, meaning the Roman Catholic Church, by which we see that Irish had, the Irish had churches, but they were not Roman Catholic, the restraining, the prevalence of vice, the improvement of morals, the implanting of virtual and virtue, and the propagation of the Christian religion, meaning the Roman Catholic version of it, thou enter that island and pursue those things which shall tend to the honor of God and salvation of his people, and that they may receive thee with honor and revere thee as their Lord, 
the privilege of their churches continuing pure and unrestrained. There we have it again, the privilege of their churches continuing pure and unrestrained, and the annual tribute of one penny from each house remaining secure to St. Peter and the Holy Roman Church, by which this is Roman imperialism, and, and Rome is just looking for tax farmers. That's all they are. They're making the King of England their tax farmer in Ireland so they could get a penny per household per year. If thou therefore deem what thou hast projected in mind possible to be completed, study to instill good morals into the people, into that people. In other words, force them to comply with the Roman Catholic version of Christianity. And act so that thou thyself as such persons as thou wilt judge competent from their faith, words, and actions, be instrumental in advancing the honor of the Irish church. Propagate and promote religion and the faith of Christ to advance thereby the honor of God and salvation of souls that thou mayest merit an everlasting reward of happiness hereafter. And establish on earth a name of glory which shall last for ages to come. And I think the name of glory that, that um, King Henry II deserves, as Clifton Emmeheiser, I believe, put it, is that he sold out the legitimate Irish church to the Roman Catholic popes. So, yeah, they were all pretty bad kings. After after um, William, the, the bastard usurper, as he was called, because the Normans came and invaded uh, England in 1066. And obviously, it wasn't that long after that um, when this Henry II invaded Ireland. And part of the, the reason why the um, the Irish went along with this, joining up with the church in Britain, was because you had these Normans in um, Ireland as well. You had the Danish, um, or the, when the Vikings went there, they made these settlements, and then when the Normans went there, they joined up with, with the Danes in their settlements, and their allegiance was already to the Pope. So the Norman settlements that you actually had in Ireland were already allied with the Pope before Henry II went over there. But before that, going right way back to uh, uh, 454 AD, I've got here is the date when um, St. Patrick fixed his principal see at Armagh. And he uh, he also uh, built an abbey there, which is supposed to be from AD 450. And the cathedral that's now in Dublin, that was built on the on the ruins of the old abbey, which um, St. Patrick himself built on AD AD 450, and you can see the difference between Patrick and this this Roman Palladium, because the wrote or Palladius, this Roman Palladius that went there in 430 AD, the king kicked him out of the country, and then Patrick went there 20 or 30 years later, and he succeeded in converting the king, and alongside the king, he also converted 12,000 converts and built 360 churches, if you believe the legends that, that surround him, and he also um, uh, instead the first bishop in the Isle of Man at around uh, AD 447, and, and you got uh, Archbishop Usher puts his his death at being around 493 AD. So there's a big difference between this St Patrick that that um, was there in the in the fifth century and the St Patrick that the Roman Catholics will tell you is St Patrick who wasn't around until 850 AD. And this church that St Patrick um, 
I don't think he, he obviously didn't start the church off in Ireland because there was a church there before then, but he obviously reinvigorated it and become, became the patron saint of um, Ireland, and his church lasted right up until that time, until Henry, Henry II amalgamated the, the Church of Ireland with uh, it would have become the Church of England at that time, but the Church of England had become completely Catholicised with the invasion of William the Bastard Usurper, and he did the same thing. He went to the Pope and said, um, "I want to invade uh, England," and the Pope said, "Well, invade England to make to ensure that they have the their faith is in line with the true Roman Catholic Church, basically. So uh, William came over and he pretty much did the same thing that the Vikings had done before him and the Saxons had done before him. And by the time he had finished, there wasn't one, uh, I think it was two, there were only two original um, bishops in place that had been there from the church before. And every every other bishop that was put in charge of a church was had been parachuted in from from these Normans. And the ones that were there before were, were the Anglo-Saxons and, and the Celts that their church had sort of amalgamated by then. And it wasn't fully Catholic. As I say, it was, it was more leaning towards Constantinople than Rome. But by the time um, this William Norman came there, it allied everything in Britain as England and Ireland towards Rome and it was like that until the until the Reformation. But that's you know, that's what sort of really fueled the anger and the wanting to split away from them in the Reformation really. So are you trying to say something there, Bill? No, no, go ahead. I I don't know if you want to start at this point with the um the persecution of the church of the Culvies from five ninety seven to seven fifty five by Seth Kino. Yeah, we could go back to that, and uh, that, that pretty much sort of sums up everything that we've been going through, really, doesn't it, from Augustine's arrival onwards, I think. Yes. Yes, that would probably be good. Okay, I'll just uh, get it up there on the, on the screen. Want me to read this out and then uh, comment on it every, every so often, Bill? Well, right. Read what, what which parts you think are, are most relevant. It, it's um, the hour is getting late. Uh, I would like to get some of this across because it it it, it helps to what well, well to substantiate what we've been saying about the Christian, the British Christian Church, and and when I say British, I usually mean it in the sense of the. Um, the way Strabo had used the term and, and earlier Greeks, where British means Britain and Ireland before the coming of the Saxons and the Romans. They were considered by the Greeks to be the same people. And, and they were both descended from the same Malaysians and Phoenicians and, and Trojans, the, the groups that had gone to Britain at the earliest times. Yeah, I don't think it, uh, it's it not implying that uh, Ireland is part of Great Britain, which we have today, or the United Kingdom. It, it was different then. It was the British people going back to Brutus. The name came from Brutus. I've even heard people say that uh, the, the word Britain itself it was an invented word. It's a new one. I mean, the original word was was England from Angusland, but it wasn't. The, the Britain came from way before that. It was from King Brutus and, and his sons that named um, 
uh, was it Al Albany and uh, Canberra? Almost, almost like Cymru, which is which is the Welsh. And uh, I forget the name for Scotland, Albany, I think it is. But he had three sons that uh, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland were were originally named after. It's uh, King Brutus, and then you say the Milesians and the and uh, the others um, arrived after that, didn't they? They still still uh, come under the title of, of British, I think. The, the Malaysians certainly arrived in Ireland probably about 1,000 B.C. Uh, I know that some chronologies say 2,000 B.C. That's, that, that's off by 1,000 years. Clifton Emmeheiser is about to explain that, I believe, in something he's working on. But it's also noted in the annals of the Foreign Masters that there's a 1,000-year mistake in, in the, in the um, interpretation of the myths that give us early Irish history. It's That's interesting that the Malaysians arrived in Ireland, which is very consistent with the history of, of ancient Miletus and the um, the colonies and, and, and things that they did, the Phoenicians of ancient Miletus in, in the Mediterranean, which today would be um, southwest Turkey, the, the southwesternmost portion of Turkey, the ancient district of Caria, Paul was in Miletus on his way to Jerusalem on his last trip. It was a famous city. The great Greek um, philosopher Thales was a was a Malaysian from Miletus, and and Herodotus called him a Phoenician by race because the Carians and the Malaysians were Phoenicians. Oh, I look uh, look forward to hearing that then. Uh... Okay, so I'll start with the first part of this then, Bill, because it, uh, it sums everything up really from the beginning, doesn't it? Yes. Okay, in the waning years of the 6th century AD, Augustine of Canterbury, under papal order, arrived on the shores of the British Isles with the intent of disseminating Roman Catholicism amongst the native Christian Celts. These Celts, called Culdes in their own tongue, were opposed to the Roman interlopers on grounds of faith and reason, as the first kingdom of Christianity, Britain and the surrounding Celtic lands had developed a simple and rich devotional culture centred on faith and free from the heavy chains of sacramental ritualism. They followed scripture as their source of jurisprudence and later the teachings of St. Columba of Iona became an element in their theocratic society. Beginning in 597 AD, the Catholic Church of Rome began to persecute the Chaldees. Their systematic suppression of the uncomplicated Chaldees was cunning, deceptive and at times brutally violent. The Roman Catholic Church with their belief of being supreme in theological matters, sought to subdue the Coldies' worship and dogma via denunciations and papal bulls. If these methods proved unsuccessful, wanton slaughter was an option. Um, I think we should probably interject here and say, although it's saying that it's the Roman Catholic Church, really what it is is, is the, the Church of Rome because it, it, it's, you, at this time, you have, as I say, you have got Constantinople, you've got the Bishop of Constantinople, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, you've got all these other people that, was, that were still part of this church, um, but it was, it was just the Rome part of it, the Roman part of it, centred in the city of Rome, that was, that was causing these problems. Do you think, Bill? 
Well, well, it was the that this had to come from the courts of of the Pope and the College of Cardinals. That this wasn't uh, that the other by this time the other um, Christian churches, especially those within the Byzantine Empire and 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 the portions of the old Roman Empire which the Byzantines had had had. Um, reconquered and, and had hegemony over. But those um, those bishops were just as much by this time, from the time of Gregory I, they were just as much subservient, subjugated to the Church of Rome than than the British were. That they yeah, right. were oppressed by the. Um, by the novels of Justinian, the decree of Justinian, that there would be one bishop over the entire um, Christian church within the empire. That, that, that decree oppresses all of the Christian churches. If you read the church history of Eusebius and others of the early Christian writers, the, um, the, the various Christian bishops of their respective localities all saw themselves as fully independent of other Christian bishops and only answerable to Christ, they to God himself, right? They saw themselves as a collection of peers across the empire. And there were times before the decree of Justinian, which are recorded by Eusebius and other writers, that the Bishop of Rome tried to, in the 4th century, tried to assert some sort of authority over other bishops based on their interpretation of words to Peter and the myth, because it is a myth, it's not true, that the Christian Christian churches in Rome were founded by Peter, but they claimed that in order to claim authority over other bishops. And in the fourth century, they were rebuffed. That authority, that claim to authority, was not accepted by other Christian bishops. Okay. I'll continue. Leaders of the Colley Church decried these brash actions as being outside the bounds of Christian law, yet the papal mission continued. By the early part of the 8th century, the Colley Church was blatantly declared to be heretical by Catholic officials. In a letter written to the Coldies by the Catholic Bishop Aldhelm in 705 AD, he stated that the Colby Church was not in accord with Catholic faith and declared that they had a tyrannical attachment to the statutes of their ancestors. Well, they, they did. We, we did follow the laws of our ancestors and they went right the way back to King, King Malmutine. There was the, um, the Catholics like to say when they do admit that um, Lucius was a Christian king, they said that he wrote to Rome asking to be baptized. But he didn't write to them to ask to be baptized. He wrote to them to ask them, um, or the church there, what laws they should be following and whether Rome could help them out with the laws. And the reply was that they should not follow any of the laws that came from Rome and that they should simply follow the laws that were set down in their Bibles. Uh, have you heard of that one before, Bill? 
No, I haven't. I would like to know more about that letter. Maybe we can discuss it in a future program. Yeah, I was just, I was just reading about it today. So it just made me think of that then. Okay, the, the theological onslaught continued for the next 50 years, having virtually succeeded in subduing the Chaldees by the year 755 AD. Rome had the dominance of the British Isles that it had desired for centuries. Though the Isles had thrown off the yoke of the Roman Empire in centuries past, they ultimately fell to the dogmatic ritualism of Roman religion. The Church of the Chaldee was founded traditionally by Joseph of Arimathea and other refugees fleeing the persecution of both the Edomite Sanhedrin and Imperial Roman government. As understood by the words of Polydor Virgil, the British historian, the gospel was received and accepted at Glastonbury before all other kingdoms. The Druids of Glastonbury, easily reconciling their belief in a triune God with the revelation of Christ and his resurrection, welcomed these strangers into the folds of Celtic life and worship. Indeed, the establishment of Christianity as the official religion of Britain by the King Lucius, circa 140 AD, excludes the Roman Catholic Church from the claim of having brought Christianity to the British Isles. For over five centuries, the faith of the Presbyterian-led Chaldees flourished, free from Roman authority and wholly dependent on scripture for their laws and customs. The clergy was frequently hereditary in similar fashion to that of the Druids. The sons of priests would often attend the ancient tribal colleges at locations such as York, Iona and Caerleon on Usk. Each one of those, um, just interjecting, each one of those uh, colleges was originally the high seat of the Druids and it became the archbishoprics. And then when Augustine turned up, we, we already had these, these archbishops that already had these seats that had been originally the, the high seats of the Druids that the bishops answered to. They didn't answer to Rome. Rome was, Rome was the enemy. And the only people, I think they even said the only uh, archbishop we know of to answer to is, is the one in Carleone on Usk, uh, when, when Augustine was actually speaking to them. I want to make a comment here about this um Caerleon. In, 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 in ancient British geography, we see a lot of places with this prefix care, C-A-E-R. And that actually comes from the Hebrew word, which means town or city. Caerleon actually means the city of Lyon on Usk. Now, we see this in, in cities this prefix, C-A-E-R, in cities in anglicized spelling, all over ancient Britain. And that comes right from the Hebrew for the word for city. Another um, manifestation of that is in the name Carthage. Carthage comes from two Hebrew words, the first one being car, which means new city. That's what Carthage means in Hebrew. New city. That's all it means. Yeah, I know I'm pronouncing it wrong as well, Bill. I should have said Carleone. It's actually pronounced car. Yeah, C-E-A-E-R. It's pronounced car. So, yeah, it's the same as Carthage. 
I, I tend to say Kerleon also, I'd, admittedly, because I don't know how to pronounce any of this stuff. No, no, I just thought I would, I, I would um, interject that. Oh, that's, that's handy. I hadn't thought of that before, Carthage. Yeah, that's interesting. In the 5th century AD, the Coldies were blessed with the teachings and leadership of St. Columba, frequently designated the Apostle of the Pits. He strove for unity between the bards and druids of Kaldi religious centres and worked towards a fullness in scriptural understanding among all the Celts. Unfortunately, his passing in 597 AD, the same year as the arrival of the Augustinian mission, left a void in leadership that resulted in the opportunity for Latin dogma to inject itself in the theology of the Kaldis. The Augustinian mission to the British Isles began in 597 AD. The Roman Pope Gregory I sent Augustine, later known as Augustine of Canterbury, and a retinue of Catholic monks to seek out Ethelbert, King of the Saxons, and proselytize in favour of Roman Catholicism. Well, Ethelbert wasn't King of all the Saxons, he was just King of um, one small area in Kent. That, that's my interjection there. Uh, on the art, on, Bill. I know from Sharon Turner that the um, the Saxon states, let's call them states, they were the Saxon states of southern England, what we know today as England, I should say, southern Britain. There were seven counties, and they had all had um, separate kings, and, and they were never united under one government, I don't think, until the 8th century, perhaps the 9th century. Yeah, Alfred the Great united them under one. Uh, you had um, Kent, which was set up by the Jutes, Sussex, Wessex, and Essex, which were the Saxons, and East Anglia, Northumbria, and Mercia, right. which were the Angles. And that, that was called the Saxon Heptarchy, and, and that was basically the area that they had uh, kicked all the British people out from, and all the British people had moved west and they and they the area where they were became known as wales and they became known as the welsh which meant meant the foreigners basically but the the foreign area what that included what was called wales also included cornwall and devon and dorset so it was the whole of the west country so it, it wasn't you know the whole of england that these saxons or we call them all saxons now but as i say there were jutes saxons and angles at the time. Uh, where did I get? Yeah, to seek out Ethelbert, king of the Saxons, and proselytize in favour of Roman Catholicism. On the island of Thanet at Ebb's fleet, Augustine and his men rode ashore and began their work. The Saxon king Ethelbert was married to a Christian woman, and his Saxon subordinates had been adherent to Juridic and Carly custom, which was distinctly free of Roman influence at this time. Augustine, through an interpreter, discussed matters of Roman dogma and acceptance of the Church of Rome's supremacy among the Saxon tribes. Uh, I'll just interject something here. His wife, I think she came from, from Gaul, and she brought over a, a Gaulish priest, but obviously, the, the priest from Gaul was also part of the Celtic Church, 
So that shows you that um, it wasn't just in Britain that had uh, the, the, the Calvary Church were in. They, they were also in Gaul as well. Because at this time, they were sending out missionaries, as I say, to, to Gaul and to Switzerland and Italy. And they had been for hundreds of years. And the priest that she brought over was, was, from, was from Gaul. Yes. So where did I get to? Ah, and initially, Ethelbert rejected the blunt demands of Roman theology, but he allowed Augustine and his Roman monks to reside in St. Martin's Church in Kent. Uh, this church, the St. Martin's Church in Kent, this church was one of the ones that was set up by King Lucius in the second century. Uh, he the, he turned the whole, well the whole British nation declared themselves Christian in 140 AD, and he set up um, at the Archbishop Rex. That was the, I think it was in 160 AD. All these times are a little bit fluid around that area, but around that time was when the uh, Archdruids became Archbishops, and the Archflamens became Archbishops. And these other juries became bishops as well. And he set up, he built various churches, and you can still see some of the stones from this original church that St. Lucius built. And then they call it um, St. Martin's. This is what I was referring to earlier today when I was saying about these churches that the, the, um, the, a lot of them, the, the Saxons burnt them all down, destroyed them, and then they rebuilt them and then they renamed them with a with a catholic saint's name instead of the original celtic name uh, that that one there st martin's church that was that's one of the oldest ones that go right back to king lucius so again that's a record that this that this church was uh the, the church in britain was already there because it it's mentioned in the records that this church was already there this church building that um they were allowed to stay in However, towards the end of the year, Roman evangelism had taken root, and Augustine baptised 10,000 men of the Kentish tribe in the Latin custom. As news of this mass baptism reached an ecstatic Rome, it resulted in a sounding pressure upon Pope Gregory I. He subsequently ordered more missionaries to travel to the British Isles to further develop the budding Roman ecclesiastical structure, and with them went the Palium, which was a cloak of honour. In the time of Imperial Rome, the Caesars would bestow honour upon those men that they desired to have as political allies by presenting them with a cloak or Palium. This worldly practice was grafted into the Roman Church as they sought to establish and maintain authority throughout Europe. Now, i just interject here. This really impressed the Saxons, uh, especially the ones in Britain, because they, they wanted to be part of uh, Rome. They wanted to be accepted, and they wanted to be part of the Roman civilization and, and the education and the learning and everything that um, went with it. And you can see that even later on with King Alfred the Great. He idolized uh, Charlemagne, and he wanted to copy what Charlemagne had done in France. He wanted to do that in, in Britain. And he was King Alfred the Great was the one that united all the uh, all the Angles, the Saxons and the Jutes and the Welsh. He was he was a great king. Uh, but so you can see from that that they they were looking they wanted to become civilized, these Saxons did, basically. Rob sorry go on. Great even did a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the tenth century. Which, which one was that? Alfred the Great. 
according to Sharon Turner, underwent a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, he was he he was translated um, the Bible into Middle English at the time as well. He was translating the Bible into English so that uh, or the vulgar tongue as they put it, so that people could understand it. And he also made certain that every lawgiver knew how to read. Uh, he wrote down all these common laws that we had, these laws that went back centuries and he set up uh, universities that you didn't have to be a nobleman to study at if, if somebody showed showed that they were bright and, and willing able to be taught then um, they could be taught at these universities he did some amazing things really Alfred the Great did and he's known as a saint by the Eastern Orthodox Church and they have a they have a feast day for him so once the Saxons became Christians they really you know they really excelled they really did, and uh, it's the same with the Normans or the Vikings. They, it really wasn't until they became Christians that they, they were really able to come into their own. And even though it was more towards the Roman type of Christianity, I do think it was still a positive force on them. I don't know if you think that, Bill. Well, well at, at this point, even though the sacrificial, the, the sacramental, I'm sorry, sacramental ritualism was there. Um, Roman Catholicism was still a lot closer to Christianity than it was in the later Middle Ages. The, the um, Bede had actually written that it was a very common thing for learned churchmen to be translating the scriptures into the vernacular of the, of, of the British people throughout England. And, and and it's um the, the scriptures were open to common men until perhaps the twelfth or thirteenth centuries. What when um Rome saw that the, the the tyranny was threatened, the hegemony was threatened by people interpreting the scripture and, and, and that um that led people True Christianity is a threat to Rome, right? That led people to um, to want to to forego all of the ritual and and the pomp and the sacraments of Rome, and and um, practice a more organic Christianity on their own. So so that's when they began to forbid the Scripture when their own authority came into question because people actually started to study it. If you study the Scripture. You can't recognize the Pope of Rome. You realize that the whole imperial Catholic Church is basically a beast built on idolatry. And and that's the reason why we have a Reformation. When when they became Christian, it also helped to unite these these warring tribes. If you think the country's just been invaded by these Saxons, and the the Welsh wanted to uh, fight them and and drive them back out of the country, it's through Christianity that uh, they were able to stop fighting and form form a coherent nation and a a coherent country. Uh, You can even see that in the history books when... um, King Arthur goes into Scotland and he's warring against these Picts and, and he's got them at his mercy and they say, look, we're Christians just as, as much as you are. 
you shouldn't, you know, we should be making peace and you should be honourable and treat me, treat us as your Christian brothers and not wipe us out. And, and he doesn't wipe them out. He does accept tribute from them. But you can see from that that it wasn't until they became Christian, whether it was Catholic or not, it was once they became Christian, they stopped fighting amongst themselves and were able to form these nations that we, that we have today. Because all the while that you're fighting against your neighbours, then you can't really uh, get very far with, with science or with teaching people or with educating yourself or studying the classics because all your universities are being burnt down all the time, as, as would regularly happen in Britain until, well, basically until the tribes became Christian. As soon as um, the, the uh, Saxons had become Christian, they started being invaded by the Vikings. And, and once they had converted the Vikings and evangelized to the Vikings and the Vikings had settled down, then the Normans came over and, uh, and attacked them. Now, all the while you're being attacked by these by by your neighbours, then it's really hard to progress. But once things are settled down, uh, obviously you can have a coherent state and and uh, a highly advanced justice system, and you can have peace in the country. Eh? And Britain was uh, it was highly prized for the for the peace that was that was in the country and merry old England, and it was a highly prized piece of real estate just because of the peace that was in the country when William the Norman invaded. You know, he really wanted the country because it was highly desirable, because it was stable. And, you know, Christianity was played a big part in that because it wasn't these countries. Our country wasn't stable until um, the people that came into it became Christian. So that was a big help to to our civilization. I think that happened in in all the other countries in Europe as well. The fighting with the neighbours until they became Christian. Well, well, the early Roman Catholic Church, which I don't count as having come into existence uh, until um, uh, until after the time of of, of Constantine, that the early Ro until after the time of Justinian, I mean, I'm sorry, the early Roman Catholic Church, even with its imperialism, which was actually initiated by actively by Gregory the Great. That the um, even with its imperialism, it it had a lot of beneficent and civilizing aspects that that did lend greatly to the development of our people. There's no doubt. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was at 1050 that the Eastern Orthodox side completely split from it, and that, that's when it got really uh, tyrannical. I think it was from about about that time onwards. Right, when did I get to here? The, Sac the Saxon king Ethelbert, the first man on the British Isles to be given a pallium, was firmly under the sway of the Roman pontiff. With his victory, Augustine had a foundation of Roman ecclesiastical support in the Isles, and he applied it effectively to further usurp the authority of the Chaldee archdruids. Well, some of them, well, some of them were archbishops. But as I say, the, the archbishops and the archdruids were existing side by side at this time. I'll continue. In 601 AD, Augustine formally assembled the seven bishops of Britain in the Synod of Chester in order to discuss the mission he had been given by papal degree. Maintaining the supremacy of the Church of Rome, 
Augustine demanded that the Chaldee church yield to Roman traditions, customs and rituals in a display of submission and conformity. The British Chaldees, certainly the first to deal with the Roman interlopers, were unfamiliar with the ways of the Romans and viewed many of their practices as idolatrous. In contradistinction to that, it can be noted that Geraldus Cambrensis wrote in the 12th century AD that the Roman monks accompanying the Augustinian mission voiced concern over the hereditary nature of the Chaldee clergy. Positions in the Roman church were given via election and this was just one of many areas in which the Chaldee church and the church of Rome came into theological conflict. I just interject there, so you've got a bit of democracy coming in there instead of um, fascism, I, was, I suppose you could say. I wouldn't call it fascism, I would call it totalitarianism. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll continue. Another prominent source of conflict, one that is entirely relative to the hereditary nature of the clergy, was that the Chaldees accepted and promoted the institution of marriage within their priesthood, viewing it as a sacred union between man and woman sanctioned by God. Even the archstewards of prominent Chaldee centres were married and had children, which was appalling to the Roman missionaries. A final major point of contention was that of Christian observances. The Roman Church held many feast days, often dedicated to the saints of the Roman Church or to the Virgin Mary. Chaldee tradition held that churches should honour Christ above all and held few feast days. The Roman practice of celebrating frequent festivals in honour of these saints was to the Chaldees a form of idol worship and was to be avoided with the support of scripture reinforcing their theological condemnation. The Irish historian Ledrich affirms this by relating to us that the Coleys did not adhere to forms of superstition and corruption that the Church of Rome had long since accepted as doctrinal. Of these conflicts, the Venerable Bede writes, the demands of Augustine were at once rejected. And by all ancient accounts, Augustine had angry words with the Synod, denouncing them for their refusal to adhere to Roman custom and threatening them with revenge. Ninoth, writing with the full support of the other British bishops, responded quite deftly that although they did not acknowledge papal supremacy, the Coldies owed service and charity to all Christians. He concluded this letter by mentioning that the British Church had been under the direction of the Bishop of Carleon on Usk, who had thus far never led them astray. The Chaldees were able to fend off the Roman advances on their way of life from a scriptural position, but they were ill-prepared for the events that would happen at Bangor on Dee 12 years later. By 613 AD, the Roman monks had grown weary of the Coldies' refusal to bend the knee to the Pope. Lawrence, the successor of Augustine after his death, subsequently provoked an attack on the major Coldie centre of Bangor-on-Dee by the Anglo-Saxon king Edelfried, 
Amassing an army, Edelfried bore down upon the famous town of Caldy Faith and scriptural education and slaughtered 1,200 of the adherents within. The Caldys prayed and wept, and the army of Anglo-Saxon men, enticed by Roman promises, ignored these actions in their relentless purge of those who refused to submit to the papacy. It is of curious note that this brash, violent motion by the Roman Church against a Caldi cultural centre actually resulted in a loss of Roman influence in the region. Ethelfried, a pagan king that held no real allegiance to Rome, then turned his army's ire towards the Roman missionaries who fled to Gaul in response. The Chaldees who survived the attack on Bangor fled to the various remaining centres of Chaldee faith, such as York, Penryn or Hrandas, with heavy losses in both kinfolk and manuscripts. They set to work at instruction and faithful education without Roman interference for roughly 50 years. You know, I'll interject here, and it was, it was, as I say, it was all the, uh, it was the Chaldee bishops and, and missionaries that managed to convert the rest of the Saxon tribes because all Augustine had succeeded in doing was converting the people of Kent and once he died many of them just fell back to their old ways anyway. Uh, to continue, in 664 AD Roman missionaries returned to the British Isles under the pretense of correcting the Caldi observation of Easter. The returning Roman monks sought the counsel of the wife of the Caldi adherent King Ozzy of Northumbria. The king's wife, a devotee of the Catholic Church, along with her son's tutor, Wilfred, and her chaplain, Romanus, were of the opinion that the Easter Passover had been correctly determined by Rome. Wilfred went so far as to label the Caldees and their faith as poisonous seeds. King Ozzy, being a wise man, wished for the Pascal matter to be put to rest and summoned the Synod of Whitby. Attending this Synod were both Wilfred and Romanus, as well as the Bishop of Northumbria, Coleman. Bishop Coleman was a simple man with no interest in idolatrous Roman theology, and his simplicity was the source of his unfortunate defeat in the debate at the Synod. Wilfred, being a cunning and crafty man, sought to twist scripture in debate via semantics through the logical fallacy of begging the question. He asserted that Simon Peter, the supposed patriarch and first bishop of the Church of Rome, had been given preeminence in matters of church authority. Coleman affirmed this statement, unaware of the fallacy at hand, and the king requested further information regarding the topic. Wilfred expanded upon this claim, and within a short time the matter was decided. Northumbria would observe the Passover at the Roman festival of Easter. Subsequently, Coleman, unable to abide the intrusion of the disingenuous Roman dogma, submitted to the Northumbrian monastery his resignation as bishop and sailed for Iona with a band of his supporters. Shortly after these events transpired in Northumbria, one of the most prominent leaders of the Caldees in the Hibernian Caldee monastery at Iona fell under the sway of Roman influence. As a learned Caldee presbyter, Adamnan had travelled throughout the British Isles in years past, 
discussing matters of scripture and fundamental Chaldee tradition among like-minded Christians in druidic fashion at the various colleges spread across the domain of the Chaldees. It is unknown what exactly caused Adamnan's abrupt theological reversal and any conjecture presented should be considered spurious at best as many of the records maintained by the Chaldees have been purposely destroyed or lost as a result of the eventual Catholic subjugation of the British Isles. Regardless, it is known that Adamnan travelled throughout the Isles, focusing on the Caldi monasteries in Ireland, Northumbria and Glastonbury, imploring that those monasteries rebuke the monastery at Iona and submit to the will of the Church of Rome. By 679 AD, many of the Coley's centres had been indoctrinated with the Roman philosophy of Catholic worship and sacramental ritualism. Adamnan, as understood by the writings of Bede, worked fervently to incorporate into the Catholic ecclesiastical system all of the Coley churches outside the sphere of Iona's influence, including those of Wales, Ireland and Britain. With the previous edition of the Saxon converts in the year 597 and the more recent support of the Kingdom of Northumbria, it was apparent to Rome that the few remaining centres of Caldi worship were those of the Hibernian or Irish Caldies. They were centred upon the Isle of Iona and the surrounding islands and coastal regions and espoused faith in traditional Caldi worship. It was at this point in the persecution of the Chaldees that the Roman church authorities began to assimilate Chaldee saints into their own history by disseminating falsified records among the Chaldee laymen in order to indicate the total preeminence of Catholicism. The Chaldee bishops observed this dispersal and examined the texts, finding them to be deceptive, or in some cases blatantly false. They angrily protested the Roman beguilers, Current Catholic officials were found to append letters to long-dead Chaldee saints and documents were found that had been supposedly written by various magistrates. These magistrates were not even holding office at the time of the document's creation. In addition, portions of Catholic authors' works were assembled as homogenous texts and the authorship was given as that of the ancient Chaldee archdruids. Centuries later, the Church of Rome acknowledged their complicity in falsifying these documents, but the damage had already been done. With such a massive amount of deceived Chaldees entering service to Rome, the foundation and structure of the Chaldee Church began to crumble. The entirety of their way of life was threatened by a powerful foreign entity that sought to destroy all dissenting doctrines. Believing that censure was the best route for fully subjugating the Caldi Church, Roman Church officials declared the Caldi remnant to be heretics. In 705 AD, a letter written by the Catholic abbot Aldhelm of Malmesbury to the remaining British and Hibernian Caldi bishops stated that their churches were conducting themselves outside the scope of the Catholic Church, claiming that they held a tyrannical attachment to the statutes of their ancestors. The abbot stated that the Chaldees must cease their resolute determination to resist Rome if there was to be any sort of unity and fellowship. At this point of the Roman persecution, Chaldee and Catholic services would often be held in the same chapels, though in separate rooms. 
over the course of a few decades, this rift drew the ire of the various Roman bishops in abbots present, and they attempted to remove or convert the Calvies. This was an important letter for the Roman agenda on the British Isles. With the support of royal edicts, the Church of Rome was able to expel the Calvies from their ancestral lands and incorporate the formerly Calvi-owned property into its own holdings. These decrees caused the assimilation of most Britons southeast of the River Severn to enter into the folds of Catholicism and sent the Caldi remnants fleeing into Cornwall, Wales and Iona. They sought refuge from the Catholic Saxons that continued to apply violent doctrinal pressure and it was admitted by the Catholic academic Count de Montalembart that this retreat seemed to prove essential for the survival of Caldi faith as it ensured their inaccessibility to Rome's religious teachings. The Caldees remained steadfast in their hidden resistance to the dominance of Catholicism that had come to envelop the British Isles and the whole of Western Europe before the seeds of corruption from Rome took root and sent the Caldee faith into remote obscurity. In a desperate attempt to preserve their doctrinal differences, the Chaldees set out to establish various ecclesias throughout Western Europe in areas previously known to them. Cities such as Ypres, Maine and Baal had been centres of cold instruction for centuries past, and some of the travellers from the British Isles sought to increase their support in those locations. Unfortunately, their efforts were discovered in the early 720s by the Catholic bishop Boniface, a pupil of Aldhelm and the future patron saint of Germany. According to the Irish historian Wiley, it was the Calvary Church's influence that encouraged those cities to flourish once again in the post-imperial world, and it was because of that influence which Boniface viewed as a threat that he consequently disbanded the establishments. Following this discovery and dismantling of these ecclesiastical centres, many of the Caldees retreated to Iona, which was the last bastion of the Caldee faith. Circa 755 AD, the might of the Roman papacy had eliminated nearly all Caldee resistance in the Isles, with the exception of Iona and some remote Irish monasteries, as the Hibernian Caldees placed emphasis on the lives of their individual members, it can be clearly understood why they succeeded in maintaining their religious freedom when juxtaposed with the complacent attitudes of the increasingly Saxon-dominated Catholic Church in Britain. As noted by early Catholic historians, many of the Saxon Catholics enjoyed the ritualism provided by their new religious authorities and found that instruction on personal conduct rather than engaging in scriptural study was preferable. Rome encouraged guilt among the Caldees by accusing them of wicked behaviour. Buckling under the pressure of the Roman pontiff, the majority of the Caldees and their way of life was assimilated into the ranks of Catholicism, only the shrinking Caldee monastery at Iona and other small congregations remained. The Church of Rome was victorious in its mission. Rome's persecution of the Caldee Church from the time of the arrival of Augustine of Canterbury until the last of the British clergy bent knee in submission to the papacy was integral to the shaping of British faith, politics and identity. 
the fierce nationalism and individualism displayed by the Celts in the face of adverse interference since antiquity has been noted by many historians of the classical era and the victory on such a grand scale was indeed important for the Roman Catholic Church as its dominance over perceived heresy solidified their claim as a sovereign body of Christianity. This claim remained unchallenged for centuries until the English Reformation elected to deny papal authority and create its own church. Without engaging in conjecture, it must be considered that dormant cultures or knowledge of their history by more learned British Catholics may have influenced that situation. Regardless, the detachment from the ancestral ways of Christianity in the British Isles due to Roman interference was a pivotal shift in the history of the region. With thousands of Chaldees dead at the hands of newly converted Catholic Saxons and many more in subservience to the sacramental dogma perpetuated by the Church of Rome as a result of royal declarations and papal decrees, the culture of the Isles was changed irreversibly. The Roman persecution of the Coley Church faded into obscurity, unlike the profound results of that act, and a properly adduced understanding of the presented events serves to encourage a greater depth of comprehension of Celtic and British ecclesiastical history. And that brings us to the end of that. I would like to thank Steph Kino for allowing us his paper for this for this presentation, for this series of presentations. It, it was a good um, summary of what was going on in, in, in the imperialism of the Roman Church and, and how they even trampled over the documents, the records of, of what, what should have been viewed as kindred Christian assemblies, and, and they just trampled over them. They destroyed their records. They rewrote their records so that Roman imperialism could prevail by deceit, if not by force. And, and that's what we're up against when, when we study this period. When we read Bede, when I read the pages of um, Bede's ecclesiastical history, it, it struck me how much of a sycophant of the Roman papacy that Bede was, that, that he was really um, head over heels an apologist for, for Rome and for Roman preeminence. I, I, it's, it's, I understand that blindness comes from God and, and, and that God's will is done in, in spite of the intelligence of men, but it's amazing to me how somebody could read the Greek and Hebrew scriptures and fall for the trick that the Roman Pope should have world supremacy and, and be bought it hook, line, and sinker. And he's just one example of many. Well, they didn't have the original teaching, did they? This, this is what I mean. They were so keen to become part of uh, the Roman civilization. I think that played a large part of it. And, and they didn't want to really follow the Christianity of the people that they had just subjected. They wanted to follow this, this Christianity that would mean that um, they were part of the Roman civilization. And I, I don't think it, you can't, I don't think it really was strictly Roman Catholic at that time. It was the Pope muscling in. It was Rome muscling in um, and trying to take the place or create a new place for itself. Whereas before then, 
all these all the other bishops of the, of the main um, places like Ephesus, or Jerusalem, Constantinople, they'd all been on an equal footing, but Rome wanted to be seen as as in charge of them all, and the the emperor and the pope wanted to be in charge basically. So it was his muscling in. But I don't think there was an actual the actual Roman Catholic Church in that name really I don't think didn't exist until 1050 when they had the schism and then you had um, Constantinople and the East formed the Eastern Orthodox Church and the, the West formed the Roman Catholic Church because I think at that time even though the Pope was muscling in and uh, taking over a lot of uh, what they were preaching would have been, would have been um, the same stuff it, it was the idolatry and the saints and the worship of Mary and all this sort of came along later really and, and it was like thrills and exciting and I think that's what the Saxons and the Vikings like because the Normans took to it straight away but the the Saxons were still they, uh, they, as I say, they still looked to Constantinople as the court of highest ecclesiastical appeal, and the Eastern Orthodox Church do claim England as being part of their church up until 1050. And if you look at the, the dioceses or the areas that these metropolitans had, Britain was classed as barbarian, and Constantinople's area of, of people that um, they were responsible for were the barbarians, and Britain was a was a part of that. But the, the Pope Gregory, he, when he saw the British slaves, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed British slaves, he remarked that they looked like angels, and he sent Augustine in to um, poach them, basically. From, from Constantinople, so that I think that played a, a part of it as well. He he wanted to poach the British from the from the um, from Constantinople, and uh, then they eventually just, as I say, sent uh, William the Conqueror in in 1066, and and he sort of sealed the deal, as it were, and then went over and, and took over Ireland as well. Well, well, the, the the biggest thing I hope that we get out of this, and we only have about four or five minutes left. The biggest thing I hope that listeners get out of this is that there was an authentic, original, and organic Christian church and, and Christian religion in Britain and Ireland long before the coming of the Romans. And the Roman church, through imperialist, through its... It's imperialistic tendencies and, and by strength, by force, had supplanted the true Christian churches of the West. Oh yeah, the church went right the way back to the beginning and they followed the Bible scrupulously. Everything was scriptural, everything was biblical. They didn't um, look to traditions handed down orally or handed down from Peter or from Paul. It, it was all what was in the scriptures is, is what we adhere to. That, that was the, where the laws came from. That was uh, where they looked to for doctrine. It was all scriptural. It, it was none of this following festivals and worshipping saints. Everything they had was, was scripturally based. Uh, and even Gildas, when he was writing, he referred to the British people as Israel. 
And they, I, I think they, they must have known that they were the lost sheep of the house of Israel, especially with um, Joseph of Arimathea coming, coming straight over here and preaching to them straight after the, uh, the resurrection. He came over with, with uh, other apostles and preached, and straight away he was welcomed by the Druids. And the, and the faith that he taught was so similar to what the Druids had anyway, and they didn't even change the name of their god. Their god was called Jesus. Yes. Okay, Sam, thank you for joining me today. And, and um, I, I don't know what we're going to cover two weeks from now, but I'm sure we'll figure something out soon. Yeah, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll work something out. Yeah, I've enjoyed this. I, I've learned quite a lot just from listening to you and, and going going through it all and revising it. It's um, So I hope people enjoy it and uh, have got as much out of this as, as we are. So, yeah, th- uh, thanks for listening. Praise God. Sven, and we appreciate your work. Praise Yahweh. Praise Christ.